We just started this series starting over last week, living life beyond regrets, and it was really cool spending some time talking to a few of you this week and just understanding that, man, I think regrets are something that we all really, all of us have in our life, things that we're like, man, I wish I hadn't have done that, I wish I had have done that, I wish that hadn't have happened, and the question How do I find life beyond this? How do I move on? It really resonated, and so it resonated with me as I continued to work on this stuff for this week, and it was cool to hear some of the stories from you this past week. Uh, You know, we learn regret early in life. I remember once, uh, I think me and my brother were playing ball in the house, throwing a ball. We hit a lamp, classic Brady Bunch moment. You remember that episode? And we hit the lamp. We broke the lamp, and here's me and my brother standing around the broken lamp like, what do we do? Like, we, you think mom's going to notice? <laughs> it's broken. And, and you just stand there and you, you immediately regret. Like, why did we throw the ball in the house? Mom told us not to throw the ball in the house. It was your fault. You threw it. Well, you missed it. You know, it's like this argument happens. And so as kids, we learn this trick pretty easily. Uh, you know, it's this phrase that we use. We call it sweeping it under the rug. You're, you ever done that literally, like, you know, I don't really want to clean this out. I'm going to push it under the bed, put it in the closet. But the idea of sweeping something under the rug is like, let's hide it. Maybe no one will notice. Maybe no one will figure out what it is. So my kids have learned this. Uh, My kids are 10 and 7, boy and girl, respectively. And I'm like watching them. And there's certain things you don't have to teach kids how to do. Uh, One thing you never have to teach kids how to do is how to lie. You don't have to teach them that. They just figure it out. Like my kids are good kids. They don't generally lie. They're generally good kids. They understand right and wrong. They feel bad when they do bad things until you catch them red-handed doing something that they knew that they weren't supposed to do. And the scene goes something like, why did you hit your sister? I didn't hit my sister. What? She's crying. She's got a, a, a welt the size and shape of your fist on her forehead, and you're the only two people in the backseat of the car. Like, who else hit your sister? It wasn't me. So we panic, and we lie, and we sleep it, sleep it on the rug, and we just, you know, we saw the video a minute ago. This little girl was trying to blame uh, the Barbie doll for painting the, 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 the nail polish on the doll babies. Like, Barbie told me to do it. And Dad's sitting there like, okay, right. Barbie told you. Now, Barbie, did Barbie understand it was going to ruin the carpet if you got the nail polish on the carpet, right? We hide. We sweep things on the rug. And honestly, that is a way that we deal with a lot of regret in our life. We make mistakes. Fortunately, most of us don't have a dad who posted on YouTube for everyone to see our mistakes. That video has over a million views, by the way. It's like that poor little girl. When she's 15, she's, thanks, Dad. People have her face on T-shirts and stuff. You know, we've all done it, though. Just think about it. Just, you, you do something you regret. You feel completely foolish about it. You realize that if anyone finds out that you'll be in trouble, and so you hide it. And it happens in all kinds of different things. It happens in the small things, like you know you're supposed to be meeting somebody for a meeting, and you're running a little bit behind. You haven't even left your house yet. And so you, you send them a text message. Say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in traffic. <laughs> I'll be there in a minute. Every time you text me and tell me that you're struck in, stuck in traffic, I doubt you. I just, I'm, I, I'm sorry. It's because it's, I was reading a blog this week, and it said that, uh, this, I guess the guy was just kind of speculating, but he said that, I believe the biggest lie told today is the text message that says, I'm on my way. Because we're all like, you know what, I could probably stretch a little bit of time. At least they know I'm thinking about coming. Because we know we're running behind, but we just want to kind of like, we kind of want to hide the fact that we made a little bit. And that's small, but there's bigger things. People, people maybe wish that they were in a relationship or a different kind of relationship. And so maybe they stretch the truth about the relationships that they're in. Because I don't want really people to know what's true. Uh, we do bigger things. We delete text messages and emails and we clear our internet search histories because we don't want people to know. What if people knew what happened or what I read or what I saw or what I watched? I just regret that and I just wish it didn't happen and so I'm just going to pretend like it didn't. We don't want to be found out. So I've got this, this on the stage. You might have been wondering, like, what in the world? I've got this 
ball. Have you ever taken, this isn't one, but have you ever taken a beach ball or a big inflatable ball at the pool and you try to push it under the water and hold it there as long as possible? Maybe stand on it. You ever done that? What happens? You can't do it but for so long, right? Because you, you, you push it down and then it's under there and with all its might, it is fighting to get to the surface. It is going to do anything it can to resurface. And I'm going to do this a few times, but like it's messy and these dudes do not want me to mess up their instruments. But like, I mean, just it fights its way to the front. It gets everywhere. It gets out because as we hold it down, the pressure builds and it's got to come to the surface. The bigger the ball and the longer we try to hold it, the harder we'll find that that is. And I found that this is a great image of what happens to us when we have kind of sinful things in our life. Things that we try to hide, things that we try to push under the surface. The longer it stays there and the bigger the problems that get, the more we realize, I just can't do this. And unfortunately, if we don't do something quick, boom, it erupts and it comes to the surface and we have to deal with it in a way that we're probably, probably not prepared for. So last week we kicked off this starting over series and we celebrated a simple truth. That even though we mess up, and there's sin and there's failure in our life, that thanks to Jesus, there is life beyond regrets. You aren't disqualified. You do have purpose. God can still use you. You can find a fresh start and a new beginning. You can start over. There is life beyond regret. And, and last week was just that simple truth. God has a plan for you even when you mess up. But today I want to spend uh, some time getting into the healing process. Because there's grace and there's forgiveness and that's great. That's kind of what Christianity is to be honest, the fact that God has a plan and he can forgive you. But there's still like a healing process that has to happen. So we're going to spend the next three parts of this series looking at what I believe are three pretty important steps, if you call them, or elements to healing beyond the regret. Whether it's sin, whether it's something that you did do, whether it's something maybe that you didn't do that you wish you would have, or maybe some things that happened in your life that you had no control over, but I've still got to move on beyond it. So I want to go ahead and give you these three uh, points or steps right now. They're, each one's going to be one uh, per week for the next three parts of this series. But I want to give them to you now because I believe they're things that if you can deduce what they mean, you can go ahead and start applying them in your life. So here are really the three things. We've got to recognize our regret. We've got to recognize it. Secondly, we've got to release our regret. And then thirdly, there's got to be some redemption. You've got to redeem your regret. And we're going to spend some time looking at those three different things recognize, release, redeem. I recommend seriously that you jot that down on your phone or that you write it down because as we go through the rest of this teaching series, I hope that it comes to a place where you can say, this is how God helps me move on. This is how I can find life beyond regret. So today we're going to be looking at that first one. Recognize your regret. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking in the Old Testament today, 2 Samuel chapter 11, a story that's there. Uh, we also, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, the, the scripture's going to be on the screen behind me when we read it. But we've got free Bibles underneath some of these seats. Uh, look around, grab one. If you need a good readable Bible of your own, maybe you don't have one or you lost yours, grab one. You can have it. It's a free gift. Everyone needs a good readable version of the Bible. But we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, 2 Samuel is in the Old Testament of the Bible. It's the first two-thirds of the Bible that basically teaches about the history of, of God's interacting with the world, and he does it through the nation of Israel, also known as Jewish people or Hebrews. And when we get to 2 Samuel, we're in a period of their history where we're learning about some of their kings. 2 Samuel has got a lot to say about a guy named King David, and we'll be looking at his life today. Actually, of all the biblical figures that you find, uh, David might be easily in the top five or ten, probably five, maybe two or three most recognizable characters from the Bible. People who don't know anything about what's in the Bible will recognize David because of the role he plays kind of in, in history, outside of even this kind of uh, religious or, or, or Jewish uh, history. 
thing that's going on. David's a well-known figure. Uh, he was a hero in Jewish history. Uh, he kind of had this meteoric rise to fame as a young boy who takes on a warrior giant man named Goliath. You heard the story of David and Goliath, and, and he, he's just a little shepherd boy. He's not a soldier. He's not a warrior, but he's got faith in God, and so he takes on Goliath. That really gains him a lot of respect from his countrymen. Eventually, he becomes the king of the Israelites. And so when we land with David, some things I want you to know about him is, yes, he was a hero. Yes, he was very well revered. He was an honorable man. Overall, he was an honorable man. He was also a godly man. Uh, he, he wrote a lot of things down that we still read today to help us understand and connect with God. Overall, David was a good man. But even good people, even godly people, make mistakes. I can tell you it's true. I know a lot of good godly people who are ashamed of things they've done in the past and wish that things had gone differently. And David is kind of a case study of what do you do? What do you do when you really mess up and you've got to move forward? Uh, we're going to catch David here in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and he's kind of at the top of his game, kind of at the beginning of this thing. His nation's off at war. They're actually doing pretty well over there. He's keeping things uh, cool on the home front. But while his nation is fighting a battle on foreign soil, he is actually beginning to lose a battle with temptation at home. So we're going to jump into David's story right there as this shift begins to happen. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 2 it starts like this. It says, One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. If you grew up in church or you know something about David's life, you, you know this story. If you haven't, hang on. This is kind of a, an epic drama that's about to unfold. Here's something that I found to be true, though, about temptation and sin. Uh, it hits you when you least expect it. David's just kind of waking up for a midnight snack. I don't know. He goes to walk on his roof. Um, that sounds weird, but really the roofs in Jerusalem were built that way. They were built kind of like patios. And so you could go up there, and, and they would have a you know, walking area, maybe some plants up there, maybe some seating. And he would go up there. Jerusalem is built on kind of a hill. And so David, as his palace is sitting at the top of the hill, on his rooftop, he's got this vantage point to kind of look down on his kingdom, see what's going on. And incidentally, he can apparently see down into the courtyards of his neighbors. And he looks down and he sees something that he likes. He sees a neighbor taking a bath. Uh, now, she wasn't being inappropriate. She was privately in her courtyard. I mean, she had walls and everything. Her privacy fence was up. She probably had no idea that people could look down on her. I don't know that for sure, but let's, let's not fault this woman for what's going on. I, it may have been a, an honest mistake. Maybe you've walked in on someone in the bathroom or taken a shower before, and it's embarrassing, especially if it was like your grandma or something. You're like, oh, man, some things you cannot unsee, right? And so, true story, but you, um, I'm real, just like you. But, you know, you, you have this, and generally, what do you do? When you see that moment, you're just like, oh, my bad. Oh, I'm sorry. You, you might walk away. David could have walked away blushing a little bit, right? Sorry. He might have sent a letter to the lady. Hey, just want to let you know, um, you should probably, you know, go inside and do that. I don't know. But David makes a different decision. David sends a servant over to inquire about the girl. He's got impure motives. I don't want you to, um, I don't want you to think that David's, like, going to try to invite her to the bowling league or something. Like, he... He's seen this woman, he likes what he's seen, and he sends a servant over to find out, like, hey, what's up? She goes and, and gets, the servant goes and gets to meet this woman. Right here, I want to point something out, okay? Right here, at this moment, when David chooses to send the servant over to check on this woman, right now, David has already gone too far, okay? David's a married man, and adultery was a crime by Jewish law. Actually, in their, their legal system, it was a crime that could be punishable by death, okay? David's the king. He knows the laws, He's already crossed a boundary here, a big one. But he's the king. 
He's got power and he's got authority. And so he decides his desires are more important than the rules. I'm going to do what I want to do. I think that I'm guilty of that sometimes. I'm the man in my house. I do what I want. I'm an American. Freedom of whatever, right? I do what I want. And we take liberties that maybe we shouldn't. There's this beach ball that he begins to push just below the surface. So far, nothing's happened. Nothing's technically happened anyway. But he knows he's treading on thin ice. And he sends someone over to find out about what's going on with this woman. Well, the servant comes back, and she tells him the woman's name. Her name is Bathsheba, which I've always thought was kind of ironic. I mean, like, she's famous for taking a bath, and her name is Bathsheba. Is anybody else? I don't know. I was like, like, Judy, maybe, something? No, Bathsheba. That's what her mom named her. Um, But Bathsheba actually is the wife of one of David's soldiers, a man named Uriah, okay? Not only is he a soldier, but he's a good soldier. He's got a reputation. David kind of knows who he is. And so David uh, looks at this and realizes Uriah happens to be out at battle the very moment, risking his life for king and country. Now, David really should have put on the brakes at this point. He's got the beach ball under a little bit, and he's going, oh, Uriah? Ah, That's one of my soldiers. She's married. Okay, I'm dragging more than just myself into this. Let's just let it go. But he doesn't. He continues. He pursues this situation. Let's see what he does. In verse 4, we find this. So David sent a messenger to get her. She came to him. And he slept with her. And then she went back home. David's sin has, has escalated quickly. He's moved from being just this in his mental temptation. He's up on his roof. Hmm. What person hasn't had a thought like that? And then he takes another step forward. I'm just checking out. I'm doing a little recon mission to going all in. And it only takes a few more verses for us to see just how quickly things can get out of hand when we start to push that ball into the water. Look at verse 5. It's literally the next verse. The woman conceived, and she sent word to David and said, I'm pregnant. Some of us have been in that situation, right? Everything changes when there's a baby involved. It's not just me and you. It's not just our little secret rendezvous. Suddenly, there's another person involved. Suddenly, stuff's going to become public pretty quick. And this little beach ball that was so playful and easy to keep underwater has just blown up, man, right in his face. And he's got a choice here. And he chooses to shove it down deeper and deeper. He's got a problem. David's mental temptation has led to physical sin. And now there's going to be a baby. And so I just got to... Put this thought out there. What do you do when you've messed up? What do you do when you've messed up? We've got different things. Maybe you sweep it in a little rug. Maybe you've got a good friend you go to. Maybe you've got a therapist that you go talk to. Maybe you write it in your journal. What do you do? Well, the little girl that we saw uh, in the video earlier, she blames it on Barbie. <laughs> and sometimes we do that. You know, We try to find a scapegoat to put it on. But David is smarter than that. He knows that man, for this to work, He's going to have to come up with a really good scheme. And so he's got this idea. He's like, okay, I got this. I'm going to fix it. So David, uh, he does something that I think we've all tried. I'm just going to call it Operation Cover-Up. Okay, let's sweep it under the rug. Let's make this seem as if it's okay. So he wants to make it look like it never happened. So what he does is he sends uh, a message to the battlefield, to Bathsheba's husband. Hey, this is King David. Uh, Listen, you've been really good. You should come on home for a little while. Spend some time with your wife. Man, I'm just proud of what you've been doing on the battlefield. Can you imagine being Uriah and getting that letter? All his other buddies are kind of in the tents, and they're all sweaty, and they're hungry, and they're missing their families. Uriah gets this note from, I guess, from his commander probably, and it comes to him, and he's just like, what? The king's told me I could go home for a little break with my wife. Huh. Turns out, though, that Uriah is a better man than that. 
You read through it, there's some more details, but what we find out is Uriah actually doesn't take the bait. He says, uh, no, no, not, not why my boys are out here on the battlefield. I, I can't come back and spend time with my wife. He actually does come back to town. David's like, come on, just go. He's like, no, he ends up sleeping on the front porch. He's not even going to be with his wife. Short story, operation cover-up does not work. I found in my life that often it doesn't. It might work temporarily, but it's hard to keep things rolling in the right direction. So he's like, okay, plan B, plan B. Plan B is what I think we often would call desperate times call for desperate measures. <laughs> it's like, oh, shoot. All right, okay, all right, well, we're not going to give up yet. I wouldn't fix this. We can fix this. So he thinks, okay, what's the problem? What's the problem? Oh, she's married. Well, she wouldn't be married if, she wouldn't be married if he was dead. This thought literally goes through David's mind. Suddenly he moves from being like a little scheming, conniving teenager making some mistakes to making like mob boss decisions. So this is what he does. He takes his own pen and writes a letter to Uriah's commander and basically issues Uriah a death, a death sentence. Look, look at what happens. I'm going to read this from 2 Samuel eleven 14. We'll get back into the text. It says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. Joab was the general of the army. And he sent it with Uriah. He sends this letter with Uriah. Hey, take this to your commander. Uh, I got a, a message for him. And this is what the letter said. Basically says, dear Joab, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest and then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. You're Joab, okay? You work for the king. You get this letter. You're like, man, what did Uriah do? He must have done something bad. But I got to listen to my king. Apparently he does it. Verse 16. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah, the Hittite, died. Like this little rendezvous, this little rooftop fantasy has it's just gotten out of hand. Now Uriah's dead. There's an unborn baby who's not going to have a father. And all because David's just trying to keep this beach ball under the water. If I could just kind of keep this under control, if I could just hide my secrets. Sometimes we do things and we think in our mind because we're in a panic, we'll think this will, this will totally work. <laughs> this would be great. Uh, this would be awesome. And then it's not as good as we thought it would be. I remember as a kid, I was probably 10 years old and had a BB gun. And my dad told me, look, you can shoot at these targets that we put up in the yard. You can shoot at the trees. I'm like, I'm going to shoot the birds and the squirrels. And he was like, don't shoot the birds and the squirrels. There's no reason to shoot the birds and the squirrels. You don't kill animals unless you're going to eat them. Like, that's just, that's just not cool. But I'm like, man, I'm 10 years old. I really need to shoot a bird with a BB gun. So I remember, I remember standing in the backyard, and Dad was in the house, and I was like, there was this, this pretty little bluebird. And he set up on the back fence. And I was like, oh, man, I could, I could take that. That's the easy shot. And I got excited about it, and I don't know what I imagined. I don't know if, like, maybe I was going to stuff it and hang it in my room. Like, I don't know what I thought was going to happen. But I took aim, pop, killed the little bluebird. And immediately, he fell it was pitiful. He's like squawking on the ground, and I had to go stand there and look at it. And it wasn't as cool as I thought it was going to be. It didn't play out like I thought it was going to play out. I just felt bad. Like some of the guys are like, "Yep, <laughs> yep." Some of the ladies too. I don't know if you shoot BB guns at birds. I don't know. Never been a lady, but. You know, I had this vision of what it would be like, and it just didn't pan out. And, and I remember my dad made me bury that bird. And he was like, look, this is what happens, man. You took a life. Like, yeah, it's just a bird, but come on, man. You can't, 
You can't just be careless like that. And I just wonder if, if David, just as soon as he issued the order and, and, and got the word back, like, hey, the plan worked, if he was just like, oh, yeah, that didn't feel as good as I thought it would. Immediately, regret. When well, Uriah died, and so David's plan did work. And let's, let's look at verse, uh, we're, we're in chapter 11 still. We're going to move to verse 26. Listen to this sentence. When Uriah's wife heard, yeah, that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Wait, this isn't playing out like I thought. Like I was just thinking it would cover up and look at verse 27. So after a time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and she bore him a son. And you think that was probably great for PR, you know, like David's you know, publicity people were like, oh, this will be, this will look great to the people. This poor widow, her husband is slain in battle and the great king is going to take her in as his wife. But the second half of that verse just nails it. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Shoving sin under the water doesn't work. Trying to cover it up doesn't work. Trying to rationalize and improvise doesn't work. You know why? Listen, this is why. This is why sin is bad. Because sin is poison to us. And God knows that. And he knows that by hiding it, it only makes it more lethal to us. Because it begins to infiltrate who we are in our system and we become toxic with it. We pack it away and we're like, man, if I could just keep this under the surface, everything will be okay. But man, that's not how it works. And God knows that. That's why he established what is okay and what is wrong, what is pure and righteous and what is evil. Because he understands the spiritual nature of what happens within us when sin gets involved. The, the only way to deal with sin, you can't sweep it under the rug, you can't stuff it under the water. Listen, it's the only way to deal with sin is to let God get involved. It's the only way. Because we're not strong enough to deal with it on our own. So I want to introduce a new person to the story. The story kind of takes a shift, and this is where we get back into the starting over uh, theme of this teaching series. Uh, I want to introduce a new person to the story. During the time of the kings, uh, God would send messages, messages to his leaders, and he would do it through people called prophets. And through the Old Testament, there were lots of different prophets. One of the prophets that lived during the time of David was a guy named Nathan. And so Nathan kind of because God reveals it to him, he knows everything that's going on. He's like, oh, wait, David did that? Oh, wait, and he did that? Oh, my goodness. And then God goes to Nathan, I want you to go tell David that I know what's going on. And so Nathan comes to David, and he's got a message for him. David accepts him as a prophet. He's like, what is the word from the Lord today? In verse, uh, chapter 12, we're going to move on to chapter 12, and we're in verse 1. This is what happens. It says, first, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, this is the message Nathan gave. There were two men in a certain town, one rich. And the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. He raised it. He grew up. It grew up with him as his, and his children. It shared his food. It drank his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So he starts telling this story. See, Nathan's clever, and he does a, a kind of a way Jesus teaches like this all the time. He's kind of a parable. He's like, look, I can't, I can't just walk in and tell David that I know what he's done. I mean, you're the king. That's a good way to get your head chopped off. So instead, he begins to tell this story to kind of corner David into a confession without actually calling him out. It's kind of clever. Verse 4, he continues the story. He says, so a traveler came to the rich man. Okay? There's a rich man and there's a poor man. The rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man. You imagine somebody coming and taking your favorite pet? 
and preparing it for dinner for their, their visitors. That's weird. It's crazy. He prepared it for the one who had come to him. Verse 5, David burned with anger against this man. He says to Nathan, as sure as the Lord lives, this man must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing. He had no pity. Now remember, David had been a good leader up to this point. He's got a good sense of justice. He doesn't want his people to suffer. He doesn't want rich people to take advantage of poor people. He doesn't like this whole situation. So when he hears about this injustice, he says, this man has got to die. Man, we got to punish that guy. Who is it? Tell me who it is. And then Nathan, in verse 7, Nathan just kind of drops this bomb on David. And this is what Nathan says. David, you are that man. Suddenly, the beach ball that had been shoved on the surface pops up to the top. You can't hide it anymore. People know. Nathan, the prophet of God, knows. And he goes on in the next few verses to explain that Nathan knew everything. Like he explains the whole thing to David. Yeah, you, you think you've been keeping the secret, but this is what the Lord revealed to me. This is what happened. This is what happened to Bathsheba. I know there's going to be a baby. All of this stuff. Now, here's the thing. Now, David could have taken one more step to hide. David was the king. Like there's no one more powerful than David. Nathan was this, you know, scholar, prophet guy. He wasn't even a warrior. It wouldn't have been much for David to be like, hey, Nathan, right? And Nathan could have been out of the picture. But it's here where David makes a decision that I hope that we can all learn to make today. A decision where he goes, no, I, I can't keep hiding this. Because there's something more than my pride. There's God's expectations for my life that I've got to consider. And so he takes a turn that I think we can really learn from today. He comes to his senses in verse 13. He says, then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. That's a heavy statement. Like to admit, I did it. And then Nathan says, well, the Lord's taken away your sin, so you're not going to die. See, it's in this moment that we start to see the first and maybe the hardest part of starting over, of life beyond regrets. You're like, Jesus' forgiveness is like instant, okay? And when we come to him, we're like, Lord, I just, I just want you to you know, help me start over. Help me. And Jesus is like, look, look, if you want to come to me, I forgive you instantly. But the reality is that there is still this process that we have to go through to get our life back in order. There's some habits we may have formed. There's some decisions that we may have made. And so the, this, though, is probably the hardest decision. And in this process, I said we're going to look at three different, like, R words to move on beyond regret. It's uh, recognize, release, and redeem. And this first step is recognize. They say, okay, I need the help. I have messed up. The biblical word for this is repentance. Repentance. Uh, repentance is defined in a change of heart that leads to a change in action. Repentance. It's this idea of like I was like headed towards the life of sin or I was making selfish, sinful decisions and then I realized God's got a better plan for me. So instead of facing this sin and this thing that God doesn't want for my life, I'm going to turn my face towards God and I start doing that. It's a change in my heart that leads to a change in the way that I live. This idea of recognizing your regrets, that's repentance. It's going, man, I just got to stop. I got to do something different with my life. And so Nathan tells David, well, the Lord has taken away your sin. Because of your change of heart, you're forgiven. But here's the thing. There's parts left to the equation. As a teenager, I was a skateboarder. I love skateboarding. I was a skate rat kid. I told a story last week about some of my crazy fashion choices. and uh, Some of my, my recreational choices were to skateboard and try to take my little wooden skateboard and jump off really high things and see if I could land on the wheels. And I found that I wasn't as good as I hoped I was. And I was often jumping off huge stair sets and jumping off like these, 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 these platforms and rails and stuff and ramps. And I was constantly spraining or 
twisting, rolling, or breaking one of my ankles. Okay, so for like the better part of my high school years, like my my ankles are twice as big as they should be, uh, and I'm wrapping them, and I'm walking in crutches, and I'm walking with a limp, and so that's just kind of the thing. Now, here's, now here's, I don't skateboard anymore because I'm smarter than that, and I, I don't need to do that anymore. Like, only Tony Hawk needs to be doing it beyond his prime years. Not me, but here's the thing. To this day, I still have weak ankles. If I run on the beach, I'm likely to roll my ankle. When I play with my kid, I took my, kid, my son to a skate park not too long ago. It was about two years ago now. Totally destroyed my ankle. First drop into a, to a quarter pipe. Shouldn't have done it. Shouldn't have done it to start with. We were there for five minutes, and I had to call my mom because <laughs> I couldn't drive a stick shift. And so, uh, yeah, so I still have weak ankles to this day. Now, I will say right now, I'm, I'm healed. Like, I don't need crutches. I don't have my ankles wrapped right now. But there are results to the things that happened in my past. It's just an analogy to show us something that happens with us with God. God forgives us totally. He wipes the sin from our slate, and he gives us a fresh start like it never happened. But that doesn't mean that some of the effects of what's happened in our path aren't going to still cause us to kind of walk with a limp. There are things we're going to still have to deal with. Going through the rehab we need to go through to get out of the addiction that God is helping to free us from. Going through the counseling with our spouse so that we can say, listen, this is what happened, but we need to move on beyond that. There are... There are these, there's these results that happen in David's life. I mean, you, you read the rest of chapter 12, and you see there are huge family problems that blow up because of this thing with Bathsheba. Even though God's forgiven them of sin, there's still some residual effects of it. The baby doesn't actually survive. That's sad. Have you ever lost a baby in your family? That just, just it wrecks you, and it wrecks David. David has the blood of Uriah on his hands for the rest of his life. I'm sure that every time he looked at Bathsheba, he remembered this decision that he made. You know, it's hard. Not to mention that to this day... Over 3,000 years later, we are still talking about this mistake that David made. How would you like for someone to talk about your biggest mistake 3,000 years from now, right? So David's life kind of lives with a limp from then on, but David realized, what I hope we can all realize today, that there is still life beyond regret. And the only way to start over is to stop hiding and make the choice to recognize the regret, to repent, to turn our hearts and our lives back to God. Because we have an enemy who wants us to keep our regrets in the dark. Spiritual forces in the world, the Bible is so clear about it. And we see it all the time. And so we think things like, man, if people find out about this, I'm ruined. Like, ah, if I let this out, man, oh, no, no. And so here's the thing. There it sits in our life, buried but not dead. Hidden but still powerful. And it's in there. And so there it sits below the surface like the ball. But I... I want to encourage us to bring it into the lights. Let it raise to the surface. I love what the Apostle John says about this in John uh, chapter 3. We'll look at verse 20 and verse 21. But he kind of, he takes, the, I'm using this analogy of the beach ball and the water and everything. He talks about light and darkness a lot. We talk about that a lot here at our church too. And this is what he says. He says, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Why don't, why don't we want to let people know what's going on in our life? I think on a spiritual level, we're just afraid that people will know. That we don't have our stuff together. That we were that guy or that girl. Yeah, I did that thing. We don't want to drag our stuff into the light because we're afraid that our deeds will be exposed. But just look at verse 21. It says, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. So that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Check this out. God recognized that we did it. He saw it in the first place when we were hiding it in the dark. He was never surprised by it in the first place. But you just bring it into the light and you say, look, God, you know that I did this. I know that I did this. 
It's time that I just own up to it. Recognize the regret so that you can move on. And stepping into the light is just another way of saying, God, I know that I messed up, but I want to trust you with the outcome of this. Because by myself, I am not strong enough to hold this down. I can't do it. I need to let you come in and help me. The only way to deal with sin is to take it to God. Remember I told you that for the most part, David was a godly man. He did. He did a lot of good things. In fact, uh, he spent a lot of his spare time writing songs and poetry that just worshiped God. And a lot of that uh, survives today in in the Bible and the Old Testament book of Psalms. And there's all these poems and songs that he wrote. And they're like, wow, this just really shows the heart of a man trying to worship God. In Psalm 51, we, we find a really cool psalm, and it's, it's cool because this is what David writes down after his encounter with Nathan. After he said, God, I'm going to turn my heart back to you. After the fallout with Bathsheba, he sits down, and we get to see what happens in the mind of a person who decides to recognize their regrets so they can start over. Look at Psalm 51, and we'll be reading a good chunk of it. Uh, first, just the first four verses. First, he says this. By the way, if, if you're dealing with some just trash in your life that you don't know how to deal with, I recommend that you read Psalm 51 out loud as often as possible. I've done it myself. It's just, it's good. Listen to this. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Think about that. Like, every time he thinks about the situation with Uriah, like, it's like, boom. Boom, you've been reminded of a mistake and it just pops in your head and you're like, even when you're trying to move on, boom, boom. It's always before me. He says in verse four, against you and only you have I sinned and I've done evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. This is so true. It's, it's hard to say, but God, I messed up and if there are consequences, I, I deserve that. That's what he's saying. We're gonna uh, kind of fast forward to verse 10. Read the next four verses. In verse 10, he says this. This is like a changing point. He says, so create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew. Listen to that word. Renew, starting over, fresh beginnings. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach my transgressors, I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Here's the cool thing. When God works in our life, we can begin telling other people what God has done in our life. So many of you are here because your friend told you God is totally turning my life upside down and I love it. Come check it out with me at church. He says, listen, will you forgive me and will you help me move on and will you create a pure heart in me so that I can tell other people about what's happened? He says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Oh God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Once David comes to his senses, what does he do? At some point, he hits his knees in prayer. He says, God, help me start over. That same new start that God gave David, he can give to you every single day. I want you to know something. If you're someone who's been doing church and the Christianity thing for a long time, I want you to know something. This is for you. This is not just for like someone who's like so far from even wanting God in their life that maybe, maybe uh, that they would never even begin to think about coming to church regularly. Like, I'm here every time. I'm always doing stuff. I no, this is for you because we need to be renewed daily. 
We need to recognize our regrets all the time. Bring it to the surface. Don't push it down, but bring it to the surface. Say, God, this is it. Let it be done in the light. But maybe you're here this morning and you just came because maybe you're here for the first time last week at Easter. I'm so glad you came back. Awesome. It's great to see you. Hope that I can get to meet you some more. But it's for you too. It's for you too because no matter where your background, no matter where your baggage lies, you can say, I just need to bring it to the surface. Let's just put it in the light. Let's just get it out there. doesn't mean you got to come on stage and share all your deepest, darkest, dirty laundry like that. It's actually not a requirement. The requirement is that you go to God and say, this is who I am. I've messed up and you know it, but I want your help. I want to trust you with my salvation. I want to accept your love. You know, Jesus tells us to cast our burdens on him because he cares for us. And the way to let God help us with our regret, with our sin, is to give it to Jesus. If you don't know who Jesus is or, or what exactly that means, I, I want to invite you to stick around. We talk about him every single week. Uh, and basically it's that God came in the flesh to show himself to us and show us the path back to his love. If you've got questions about is Jesus reliable, is why do we read the Bible, why would we even believe that, I want to let you know about something. Uh, we have a four-week class starting next Sunday night, uh, April 30th. It's four weeks. It's called Venture Basics. Um, if you've never taken that class, I encourage you to take it because it answers in four weeks very simple questions. Who is God? Who is Jesus? Why would anybody believe in him? Is the Bible reliable? And should a smart person actually believe it? And what does it mean to live like a Christian? You'll be challenged, you'll grow no matter where your level of faith is. I encourage you to, do, to be a part of that class. We've got a, uh, uh, an iPad to the right as you exit. Sign up for that class. You'll get an email right away with some information, and then we'll be reaching out again. We've already got a handful of people signed up, so you won't be alone. Um, sign up for that class, because you can answer some of these questions. Who is Jesus, and what does that mean for my life? Another challenge I want to give you, and it's one I want to start to make often, is this. Before we leave today, I think that if you leave here not being challenged to move in some way, then maybe we didn't do our job here today, like as a family. I want to challenge you to make a move in your heart, in your mind. What does it mean? In just a minute, we're going to take some time to just uh, pray. Maybe for you, that move is just to say for the first time to God, like, God, I want to find you. Can you help me? Maybe for you, that move is to, uh, there's going to be some guys straight back. If you look straight back, there's like this painting on the wall. There'll be uh, two or three guys standing right back there that would love to pray with you. If during our time in a second when we do another song, if you want to walk back there and just have somebody pray with you, you got issues in your life you just want to talk about. These are people that I've met with. I meet with them monthly. I trust them. They're spiritual leaders at our church, and you totally can go back there and just talk to them. Or maybe with them you want to say, listen, I've never become a Christian. I want to do that. You can, you can do that today. You can confess your faith in Jesus, and we can set up the whole thing when you get baptized today. You can give your life to Jesus today, and somebody can talk to you about that. But here's the thing. I don't want you to leave this room today unless you are ready to move. Say, God, I'm ready to, to let the ball up. I'm, I'm ready to give it to you, and I want this life to be for you and about you. So let's stop the beach ball game. Let's be real with ourselves. Let's be real with each other. Let's be real with God, and let's see what it means to live life beyond regrets. I just want to pray with us this morning. God, you're good, and I just I thank you for the opportunity we have to um, know you, to know about you, and to know your salvation. And God, as we learn the story of David, which is just a story that we kind of see of a guy who's just made a lot of mistakes and messed up, I hope that can be something that we can relate to and we can grow from. Um, God, you're good. Help us to accept your goodness and move forward in your grace. And we love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.